you have your Bibles and you would like to turn with me, we're in the Gospel of John, continuing with the Gospel of John. Uh, we are going to start in verse 31 and move to verse 37 today. I did, after all, that decided we're going to move out of chapter 30 and then head into verse 31. So we're going to look at verse 31 through verses 37. This morning, if you would, and you are able, please stand as we give attention to the infallible, the inerrant word of God, starting in uh, chapter 19, starting in verse 31 through verses 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But then they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead. They did not break his leg, but one soldier pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also, or you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Please be seated. It is finished. This is what we saw the last few weeks. These are words that echo in our mind. It is finished. So much has been building as we've been going through the Gospel of John. Jesus has been preparing his disciples for his eventual departure. He has been teaching them and training them of the things that they need to know once he is gone. He's given him, them a picture of his death, of his resurrection at the Last Supper, but now it is finished. He has atoned for the sins of his people. He has paid the price that they could not pay. He has become, as we saw last week, their propitiation, their redemption, their reconciliation. And with these words, he gives up his spirit. It is finished. He has laid his head into the protective, resting control of his father. He has an end to his pain and to his suffering that he has endured. But then what? What happens next? The people certainly didn't, around him, didn't understand what had happened. The disciples don't yet remember what Christ has taught them. All they know is that their beloved teacher, their friend, has died. Everything that they hoped to gain in Christ has kind of crumbled and faded away. And in some ways, what happens next can be somewhat clinical or even mundane, it is the things that happen after it is finished. Two things, in essence, are happening in this passage. They are first making sure that Jesus is dead. It's the Sabbath. Not only is it the Sabbath, it is a, as it says, a high day. It is a Sabbath that would launch into a feast week. So it was a particularly, particularly important Sabbath. And so they need to speed things along. 
So they want to make sure he's dead, and that's why they go to breaking legs. Or they want to speed along that he's dead. That's why they go to breaking legs. But second, they want to make sure he's dead, so they stick him with a spear just in case. After that, they have to attend to the burial. We'll see this next week, but they take his body, they put it in a tomb. They prepare it in the the way of traditional Jewish people. They didn't have much time as it was kind of a rushed event. They had to get him in the ground before the sun went down. For the the Sabbath, if you think about uh, today, if you think about Sunday, for, for the Jewish person, technically their Sunday would have started yesterday at sundown. And it would end this evening at sundown. So it kind of was like the 24-hour period between sundown and sundown. And so they, he had to be in the ground. We remember he was on the cross. The, the, the sky went dark about noon. He was probably there for about three hours. But they only have so much time to get him in the ground before the Sabbath begins. So in many ways, these events are mundane. Okay, he's been on the cross. This is an execution. Is he actually dead? Let's make sure he's dead. And then let's put him in the ground. They don't even have time to properly mourn him. And while these events may seem normal, they are not normal. Never before has the Son of God died. Everything that happens, and it will happen from this point on, happens with a purpose and with a meaning. And so as we consider these events today, what is their meaning? What are we supposed to know and learn from them? They are meant to, again, to show us the reality of Jesus being the Messiah sent by God. Jesus, who has presented himself as the fountain of spiritual life for all who will believe. And throughout the gospel, we've seen... Uh, the importance of some of these themes, particularly thinking about water. Water has played an important part in in John. It is the water in which Jesus turned to wine. It was the water uh, that was used as an object for the woman at the well. It was the water used at the pool of Bethsaida for the healing. Out of Jesus' death, by means of his blood flows living waters, as Revelation tells us, besides the river grows the tree of life. It is a water that brings healing to the nations. This is what we're meant to see in our text today. So we're going to consider three things as we come to this text. We're going to consider the bone, the spear, and the word. The bone, the spear, and the word. Those are our three points this morning. We'll begin by looking at the bone. So not only was the Sabbath about to begin, as we've already said, but it was an important Sabbath. And because of this, the Jewish leaders were very concerned that these men who were hanging on the cross would defile this holy day. They could not go into the Sabbath unclean. Uh, per De- Deuteronomy 21-23, talking about uh, any, t- any time that a man has to be punished uh, through this kind of... Uh, words are hard. Uh, Through corporal punishment, uh, and particularly by hanging on the tree, Deuteronomy 21-23 says this, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
foreign inheritance. They knew these words. They were very concerned with these words. They didn't want Jesus or these two other uh, uh, criminals on the cross to be hanging there all night because it was a high, holy day, and they did not want to defile their land. And there's much irony in this, as John Calvin points out. In order to keep the strict observance of their Sabbath, they are careful to avoid outward pollution. And yet they do not consider how shocking a crime it is to take away the life of an innocent man. But because of this, they want to hurry things along. And one of the Roman ways of doing this was to take either a uh, mallet or an iron bar and to shatter the, the femur of the man hanging on the cross. Uh, some have said that this is, oh, so they can't leave. They'll just sit there and suffer and die. They, they wouldn't actually take them down from the cross. What this was meant to do was on the cross, they would break their bones, and it would keep them from pushing up. Now, what did pushing up do? Well, as you're hanging on the cross, you can imagine all your weight is pulling down. And what that does is, if you ever have been in that kind of position, I don't know if you have or not, if you've maybe hung on a uh, monkey bars or something like that for any lengthy period of time, it's hard to catch your breath. And so what the people on the cross would do is they would, with their feet, they would push up and they were able to get breath into their lungs. By breaking the bone of the leg, they would no longer be able to push up. In essence, this led to asphyxiation. They would die by loss of breath. They would basically um, eventually pass out and die uh, from lack of oxygen. So this was the purpose in shattering the bone. We just need to get these men on with the process so we can get them off the cross. This has certainly been um, documented. There are, through different archaeological research, there have been people who were found to have been crucified, uh, and they have had, some of them had their bones shattered um, below the knee. Here we see evidence of the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. This is a moment that is taken to point again to Jesus as Messiah. While the first two men had not yet died and their bones were indeed broken, and then they would soon have died, Jesus' bones were not broken. He had already died. When it said it is finished, when he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. And what this serves to do for us is to address some of the doubts that some have tried to sow when it comes to Jesus really dying on the cross. There are two major doubts that have arise from uh, Jesus' death on the cross. Some say Jesus was never actually human, and therefore he could not suffer a human death in a human body. Again, this is denied by the events of the cross. But second is that there are those who say that Jesus merely seemed to die on the cross. This is called the swoon theory. Basically, Jesus fainted. I find it funny that they use the word swoon. It makes me think of like some lady in a waiting room in a, oh, I got the vapors kind of thing, right? And swooning, but that's the word they use. <laughs> Rusty thought that was funny. It makes me think of, honestly, it makes me think of Designing Women. Anybody ever watch that show? I grew up watching Designing Women. Um, or my mom did, and I saw it on the TV. That kind of, anyway, sidebar. Anyway, they say Jesus merely fainted on the cross. 
And this is evidence, it's meant to be evidence to counter these kind of thoughts. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't, didn't actually die on the cross, that he wasn't actually human. It was uh, that he was truly human, and he, he actually died on the cross. And to combat these denials, John is appealing to the most reliable of sources, Roman legionnaires who were skilled in the art of death. They were experts. And so, he points out, they were asked to break the legs, but they did not break Jesus' legs because he was already dead. And in this bone, we see two important truths. The first is this. The leaders of Israel have no clue of what it meant to be cleansed. They were so concerned with outward cleanliness that they have given over the Son of God to death. They're not concerned with the inward cleaning they so desperately need. And the second is this, that the Son of God did actually die. No matter what alternative truth people try and give us, the Son of God was truly man, and he suffered a real death. What does this mean for us? Okay, what is our modern day application from, what are we to take away from this? First, we must come and know that we should not Merely be concerned with outward signs of being clean. And sadly, this is something that we're all very prone to do. We want others to think that we're doing good. We want others to think well of us. So we present a picture of outward cleanliness. We present a picture of outward cleanliness. All the while, we are rotting on the inside. We must be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Second, we must know that Christ has indeed died. It is not that he seemed to die or that he was not even man, but the actual Son of God actually died on the cross so that we might actually have forgiveness of sins. This is the fountain from which we get life. In essence, we're talking... Again, I, I love my class that I get a to uh, teach with the two young ones, uh, Drennan and Josiah. And this morning, we were focusing on two covenants and just really trying to boil it down to its base. I'm going to pick on them this morning. Josiah, do you remember what a covenant is? Are you going to answer me? Drennan, do you remember what a, a covenant is? That's right. And we talk about two covenants, agreement between two or more persons, right? And we talk about the covenant of works. And what was the conditions of the covenant of works, Drennan? Yeah, I put him on the spot. He was being really good. Perfect obedience, right? Perfect obedience, right? Yeah. And did our parents, Adam and Eve, perfectly obey? No, they didn't. But then we have a second covenant, a covenant of grace. And who was the parties of the covenant of grace? Who were the two people in the covenant of grace? It was God and Jesus, wasn't it? Yeah. And Jesus, for us, lived perfectly and obeyed the law perfectly. And he made us righteous. He took our punishment on himself and gives us our 
gives us his righteousness. Yes, he has cleansed us. And we must know that this is true. We must not simply present an outward sign of cleanliness. He has cleansed us to our core. We have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. He has died. We see this evidence continue in our second point, the tear. It's interesting because this is the only place in all the Gospels or all of Scripture, certainly, that we have this account given to us. None of the other Gospels talk about the spear being stabbed into Jesus' side. But here, John thinks it is a very important point and wants to make sure that we know it. Jesus sighed. The soldier looks at Jesus and says, well, he's dead. There's no need to break his bone. But just to make sure, we're going to pierce his side with a spear. And from that wound flows water and blood. It's a language that John will later use in his first epistle, 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit is one, the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And these two symbols, both water and blood, have no lack of explanation in Scripture. And so there are several things that we need to consider when we come and look at this event of the stabbing with the spear and the water and the blood. And the first is this. Why, why did John stress when no one else did to include this event? There are those who have sought to look at it clinically, and they've said, well, he's just trying to explain to us the events that happened, and perhaps uh, the spear pierced the sack around the heart, and that has a fluid-like substance in it, and so it looked like water and blood came out. But really, this does nothing to shed evidence on the light of the theological importance of these events. Many in the early church tried to cite a mystical connection between the sacraments in this event. So Augustine says our sacraments have flowed out from Christ's side, both the water and baptism and the blood of, of the, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. I think it's doubtful that John intended this as an implication. I think the third option is probably what is more helpful to us, is that the blood and water signify the chief blessing of Christ's sacrificial death. The blood as a sign of the atonement for sins and the water as a sign of cleansing. And in fact, I think this is the most simple and basic thing that we take away from this because this is how it is used throughout almost all of Scripture. The blood of the atonement and the water that is used for cleansing. It emphasizes these two flows from Jesus' pierced side. Forgiveness of sins and the washing of purification. Through faith in the cross, we gain these two essential benefits of the covenant of grace. The blood. We have no shortage of references. We can look at the Passover lamb, the blood sprinkled on the altar. You go throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, blood is always identified with the atonement for sin. And again, water, baptism is not a new thing. We tend to think of it as a New Testament thing, right? Baptism being the new, new sign of the new covenant. But baptism, quote-unquote baptism, which were ceremonial washings, were, it's the same word, though, were also in the Old Testament. If you were unclean, there was times where you'd have to dip yourself in the Jordan or some other body of water and cleanse the sinfulness. It is a sign of the cleansing of sin. We need to be both atoned for and to be washed. 
Both of these things are accomplished by Christ on the cross. His blood is poured out for us that we might have forgiveness of sins, and he is the living water which we come to for cleansing. We come and drink and never be thirsty again. He has done all this for us. So we have the bone and we have the spear, but our third and final point is the word. What do these two things matter at the end of the day? How are these not just merely events that are explaining to us what happened to Jesus after he died? Just mundane events. What are we, how are we to take these? Well, we see these as both fulfillments of Scripture. John is taking great lengths and pains to show the credibility of his witness. So he points to, to the book of Exodus. Particularly where it's talking about the Passover lamb. Exodus 12 says this. And it shall be eaten in your house. And you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. And you shall not break any of its bones. John was not only establishing the witness of his record. But also giving it theological significance. Jesus is the Passover lamb. The blood of which as we know, would be put on the, the door thresholds of the, people, the houses of Israel, and the angel of death would pass over. And this is what Jesus has become for us. His blood has been put over on us so that death might pass over us. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump, as you are real, really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Because he is our Passover lamb, we are new. Second, he points to, to Zechariah, Zechariah 12.10. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Zechariah saw in Jerusalem's rejection of his own ministry, the greater rejection of their true Messiah. The prophet would go on to speak in Zechariah 13 and 1 and say this, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. Zechariah was looking to this day when the uh, Jesus Christ would be opened himself, and from him, a fountain of cleansing would flow. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this fountain still flows today. So that all who look on him who is pierced, all who mourn their sins, those who call on him in faith will be forgiven, cleansed, and restored to God. John has been careful throughout his gospel to point out the many ways in which Christ's life, death, and resurrection are a fulfillment of Scripture. And this is no less true in our passage today. Not one bone was broken from the Passover lamb, and his blood was poured out as a cleansing for his people. He is our Messiah. Now what? So what? Why? What does it mean? It means that he has come to deliver us, his people. He, he has come to live the life that we could not live. He has come to die the death that we could not die. And he presents himself for us as the one true sacrifice and propitiation for sin. He has atoned for us. He has washed us. 
And so therefore, we must come and bow the knee before him. We must rest in what he has done. As the hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Do you believe? Are you resting in this? Come now and know the peace that only Jesus can bring. In fulfillment of Scripture, not one bone was broken. He came and set out what he intended to do. He was truly man and he truly died, all for me and you. In fulfillment of Scripture, both blood and water flowed from the side whom they pierced. Blood that would be for the forgiveness of sins. Water that would make us clean and presentable before God. All this done according with God's plan. Therefore, come ye who are heavy laden. Come to the one who can give you rest for your soul. This is what we come to this morning. We come to this table and we find rest for our soul. Jesus' body broken. His blood poured out. It is a wonderful reminder of the grace and mercy of God. I feel for churches that do not make regular use of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Because every time we take this table, we get to be reminded of the grace of God given to us in a real and tangible way. His grace comes to us. It is a beautiful thing, for Jesus really was who He says He was. He was the Son of God. He was born of Mary. He was born man. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. He died the death we could not die. He was atoned and made sacrifices for our sins to let us know Him and rejoice in Him this morning. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Lord, we come to You this morning and we rejoice in this One who was slain. We rejoice in the blood of the Lamb. We rejoice in all that He has done for us. Oh Lord, would we know Your mercy and Your grace this day? Would we know the forgiveness of sins? That is, we do ask and pray in Jesus' holy name.